The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. And welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and today I'm joined by Kojo Karam. We'll be talking about the politics of the Tory Brexiteers, why it is that the prospect of trading on WTO terms is so attractive to them. And we'll also be chatting about the idea of a progressive English nationalism. As always, you can listen to PTO on SoundCloud, iTunes, Acast and all other good podcast apps. And you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Poll Theory Other. And if you've been enjoying the show, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Kojo Karam teaches at Birkbeck School of Law at the University of London. He writes on law, race and empire. He's written on Brexit for publications such as The Guardian, The Nation and Descent magazine. And you can find links to some of those articles in the description of today's episode. He'll be publishing a book called The War on Drugs and the Global Colour Line, which will be coming out later this month. In your recent article in Descent, you point out the way in which advocates of a hard Brexit, which uh, would mean Britain trading on WTO terms, the way that their argument has kind of shifted in recent months from the standard claim that a hard Brexit would uh, yield immediate economic benefits to instead to these suggestions that a hard Brexit would perhaps indeed result in a crisis, um, but one that would unite the country under a return to the to the blitz spirit, to, to quote a, a Times article that, that you refer to. Um, why do you think we've seen this rhetorical shift and what do you think it tells us about the nature of the Brexit project? I think that there's been this shift in the rhetoric because it's kind of at a different point in the project and there's a need to emphasize a different element of the kind of ideological rhetoric um, at a time in which the um, Brexiteers were promising that any kind of hard Brexit would result in immediate freedom from the constraints of the EU regulatory body and for the United Kingdom to all of a sudden start to reap those economic benefits. Um, that was a time in which, you know, a kind of triumphant nationalism was driving um, the Leave campaign and driving the the, the attempt to, to unify people behind, you know, a, a political project that was, for whatever failings, um, going against the kind of um, status quo economic and political opinion. Um, that kind of triumphant nationalism has started to dissipate as the illusions of British hegemony have fallen away. Um, you know, the slogan of the Leave campaign at the time, that the promise to take back control, I think, you know, two years of failed negotiations um, have left almost nobody feeling like they're in control and nobody feeling like control is going to return at any time soon. And so there's now been a, a shift to another point of kind of British national imaginary, and that is the idea that, well, it won't necessarily lead to kind of triumphant nationalism, but it might lead to some hardship, it might lead to some sacrifice. But this is where Britain shines best and harks back to, you know, the greatest moment of the Second World War and the spirit of the Blitz. And it's actually been a relatively easy shift, I think, 
for mm. those hard Brexiteers because this kind of narrative, this idea of freedom through sacrifice is something I think is much more common with British national political culture than the previous triumphalism. You know, triumphalism I don't think sits very well with our national kind of ideology and national self-image. Britain's only one of two of the 193 UN member states not to have a national day. It's always seen kind of nationalism as this kind of crude and vulgar relic that's clung to by less civilized places. And I think that the idea of Britain instead being able to, you know, button down, have a stiff upper lip and go through this kind of economic hardship is something that we find a lot more comfortable in harks back to ideas of, you know, an island nation that stood alone at the time of the war. And it also harks back to the way in which um, Britain has often, despite having been one of, if not the largest empire in terms of economic, economically, in terms of landmass, in terms of wealth that the world's ever known, um, Britain has often emphasized moments of political struggle or political defeat or political um, opposition against greater power. George Orwell's one of the First, to really kind of identify this, where he talked extensively about how almost all British military conflicts that are memorialized are actually military defeats or military retreats, things like Dunkirk. Something that I noticed when I was doing um, research for a previous project, looking at um, the role of Britain in terms of the Opium War. And you'd think that victory, you know, over Qing Dynasty in China in the First Opium War, or victory over the Russian Empire in the Crimean War, these kind of um, incredible triumphs of the British Empire would be something that would be familiar to us in terms of our history curriculums. Um, yeah, I, I would struggle to recall a single imperial victory, I think. Yeah, I, was, I was thinking about this previously. Which is really strange. I think that every empire, you know, minimises a few massacres and minimises a few... Um, a few, you know, starvation, mass starvations. That's something that happens. But I think what's particularly curious about the British Empire is the way that it minimizes its actual so-called imperial triumphs as well. Unification of the colony of Nigeria or stuff like, um, yeah, victory in the Opium War is really erased from the British history. It's been almost wiped out by the rearguard action of the Second World War. And I think that, you know, the kind of current tedious debate that's happening over Winston Churchill, over whether you know his, um, whether all of the crimes of his time, both domestically and um, in the empire, are wiped out by you know his um, leadership of the United Kingdom in the Second World War. I think speaks to the way in which we're far more comfortable with that narrative of little plucky underdog Britain standing up against greater foreign powers than we are with the idea of a triumphant Britain taking its place back at the top of uh, the world's order. And so I think that that is something that Brexiteers have been able to facilitate, that kind of easy shift back onto that more comfortable terrain. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's actually quite effective in terms of resonating with the public. And um, I mean, that sort of that disavowal of uh, imperial history that you talk about and, and uh, you know, sort of focusing on these moments of, of, of struggle and, and, and the, as you say, you know, the, the Churchillian rhetoric of, of we, we stood alone and, and, and so on. Obviously, that also involves a disavowal of just the reality of the situation in in 1940, say, when, you know, the notion that we were sort of this this, this small, weak island power is, you know, just just uh, wildly at variance with the reality of, of, a, of a major, major empire. Absolutely. And this is something that was kind of really, you look at a lot of the 
So you look at, say, the speech from King George in around 1940, where he talks about how he says explicitly Britain isn't standing alone. We're not standing alone here. He talks about, you know, brothers and sisters around the empire. You know, Britain's really conceptualizing itself as this kind of global power. And then obviously in terms of actually the um, conclusion of the Second World War, you know, the enormous role played by the Soviet Union and the United States to a lesser extent, I would argue, than so than even the Soviet Union in terms of actually um, concluding the Second World War meant that at that period, I think looking at a lot of historical work, that idea of Britain standing alone wasn't at all as prevalent as it's become subsequently. It's something that has been reconstructed um, post facto the event in order to try and solidify this idea of an island nation following um, the dissolution of the empire. I think that it's very difficult to really understand the politics and the culture of the United Kingdom in 2019 without appreciating that Great Britain was a completely different entity politically, um, economically and legally to a large extent um, at the start of the 20th century than it was at the end of the 20th century. That transition from being a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, global spanning empire into trying to um, find a role in the world as an island nation is something that is, I think, um, underwrites a lot of the, the, the political contestations that we're still wrestling with today. But it's something that is um, is minimized by a kind of intellectual sleight of hand by especially um, a lot of the right where they um, where they take that idea of the island nation and project it back into something that Britain has always been. It was always been this kind of individual island nation and any preeminence that it had in the world any advantages in terms of wealth, um, the fact that English is the world's global lingua franca, um, the fact that the city of London remains still a, one of the world's financial centres, um, that is a result of British innovation and intelligence, not a result of um, kind of imperial power. So the empire kind of gets de-emphasized, minimized, and this island nation gets projected back into history. And um, uh, I think that's something, yeah, that informs a lot of the, the issues of the current moment. Hmm. And I suppose there's also that um, going alongside that is a sort of overstatement of the strength of, of, of Nazi Germany in the period. I mean, I, I've got an interview with David Edgerton coming up um, and I, I've spoken previously to, to Adam Tews. Um, and this is something they both talk about very much. I mean, you know, David writes about how the onset of the war, contrary to the, the Sicilian rhetoric of this, you know, moment of, of extraordinary drama where, you know, we were at risk of being overrun. Uh, that the British were extremely confident going into the into the war, that they were aware that they were sort of technologically and industrially superior to to Germany, and and expected an outcome similar to to the First World War. Um, regarding the that that shift in in the narrative towards this, um, you know, sort of raising the spectres of, of the Blitz spirit and all this kind of thing, um, does that for you suggest that the talking about the disastrous consequences of a No Deal Brexit? much like the total focus on questions of the economy during the referendum, uh, that that kind of narrative won't necessarily re- uh, yield the result that people will expect because people are so sort of drawn and attracted by this this idea of sort of uh, national national sacrifice. And, and you, going back to Churchill, I mean, I'm thinking about this, it, it made me recall again that um, Churchill's 1940 speech, you know, the, the blood, soil, sweat and, and, and tears uh, speech or, or whatever it was and, and just how attractive that kind of... Uh, narrative is to people i think that that's something that those who uh, who uh, for me i think again bringing um what's often referred to as bringing facts to an emotions fight those who are trying to emphasize the economic consequences of a no-deal brexit the way in which it will 
disrupt Britain's lines of trade, Britain's relationships with the international market, Britain's relationships on a political level in terms of the actual other institutions and other nation states through which its alliances are drawn, um, ignore the way that a lot of that just simply doesn't resonate to the same extent as the promise of being able to recover a sense of pride through sacrifice. And it's, um, it's, it's, it's something that I think would be learned a lot clearer if we actually looked at the way um, nationalism in opposition to imperial power. Obviously, the European Union isn't an imperial power, but this is the way that it has been framed by many of the Brexiteers. You see Boris Johnson now claiming that Britain's going to be left a colony of the European Union. You know, this is the same person who previously was blustering around talking about, you know, how the European Union need uh, the UK more than we need them, and now talking about the consequences being the UK left as a colony. Um, you see the same um, yeah, in the rhetoric of the likes of Jacob Rees-Moggs and uh, a, a plethora of different other Brexiteers. Um, what they, uh, I think, recognise, looking at the way that the, the, the rhetoric of national liberation has been used around the world, is that it is a rhetoric that has at its core, really at its heart, the idea of sacrifice and without defining who of the population is actually making that sacrifice. You know, you look at the way national liberation was used around the world, um, kind of in the anti-colonial movement, looking at everywhere from, you know, Joseph Kenyatta and, and the Mau Mau's in Kenya to looking at the way it was used, you know, Nasser in um, Egypt and uh, many other contexts. The crucial element about it is that it requires the population to endure a period of suffering in order to outlast their um, their adversary. So not to necessarily military defeat them, but in order to outlast them, to exhaust their capacity for pain and to um, have them there capitulate as a result of this inability to withstand the national population's um, ability to, to sacrifice. And that will prove to be um, particularly effective in a lot of contexts around the world. And I think that's something that is understood in terms of this construction of an idealized kind of island nation mentality, this relating of any kind of period of post-Brexit hardship, economic hardship or political disruption to the blitz spirit, to the period of self-sacrifice and to to trust that that narrative will be um, seductive enough to enough of the general public to to yeah, to override the kind of warnings and um, yeah, I guess you could even argue threats of of economic and political disruption that that it would be dismissed as yeah, project fear. In terms of actually trading on on WTO terms, I mean the appeal of it you suggested in your writing depends on that that disavowal of empire. It's, it's to sort of believe that at some point in the past we were this free trading nation and we and we you know sort of just did our own thing and and uh, we were very successful in that in that period of time. Um, in terms of the, the sort of hardcore Brexiteers, would you argue that effectively they believe their own rhetoric about, about Britain's imperial past? Because in some ways it seems hard to believe that they can, given um, you know, the social class of these people, you know, who their, their parents and their grandparents will be. You know, they, these will be people who in many cases um, they will have family members who grew up in Britain's colonial um, hinterland. You know? um, so do, do you think they managed to convince themselves of this narrative somehow uh, despite that? I think it's kind of working on a on, on a dual on a dual basis. So I think that firstly, there is an understanding to a large extent of Britons um, within this, these these particular social classes within this population of Britain's former 
political power as having come from its economic innovation. So thinking about um, the wealth of Britain at the close of the 19th century as having come from the acceptance of unilateral free trade policies, the repeal of the Corn Laws in 1846, and the acceptance of kind of unilateral free trade policies, you know, that gets tied in with the writings of um, Dave Ricardo, particularly Adam Smith as well, in order to... Um, in order to pass on an ideology, and this is, I think, a way that, you know, many um, students of economics are kind of trained within the United Kingdom and particularly within the more prestigious institutions, they are trained under the belief that that is the basis through which Britain gained a competitive advantage over its European imperial rivals and positioned itself at the um, apex of a global order of empire. Um, so I think that there is that understanding and that obviously deletes out um, the way in which um, Britain managed to establish itself in a particular position within the global order prior to the repeal of the Corn Laws in the middle of the 19th century through the kind of gumblo di diplomacy and through the um, uh, you know aggressive land appropriation um, you know, in the 17th and 18th century, obviously, as well as the riches and benefits of things like transatlantic slavery before that was repealed, you know, all of these play a role into putting Britain into a particular position in which it can um, engage in unilateral free trade policies. And, and um, sorry, sorry, Koja, and, and also, I mean, protectionism is, is key during that period as well, right? Absolutely. And you mentioned having David Egerton on shortly, and I think that he's really good in terms of showing the way in which there was always this tension, always this conflict back and forth between protectionism and kind of uh, an imperial internationalism within the, the trading policies of, of, of the British Empire at that time. Um, and so, you know, and you can see that, you know, especially the way in which elections in the first part of the first couple of decades of the 20th century flick back and forth between the liberals and the conservatives as both are trying to kind of stress their point. So um, I think that there is that misunderstanding absolutely of how Britain has managed to uh, accumulate its wealth in the past. But I also think it's a willful misunderstanding because I think that there is an awareness on the kind of hard Brexiteers, you know, your ERGs and you writers of, you know, Britannia Unchained and these kind of documents, there's an awareness that if Britain did accept those kind of liberalising policies today, whilst it may not put Britain in the economic position it was in the 19th century, it would increase the wealth and the proportion of wealth that is held within those who own capital. Um, I think there's an awareness that looking at the acceptance of unilateral free trade policies would mean that Britain would only really be able to compete on an international level by trying to undercut the global market. So we're looking at a reduction in corporate tax, we're looking at a reduction in kind of high income tax, we're looking at a repealing of great amounts of kind of workers' protections. Um, you know, those, you know, the famous kind of Andrea Letzum argument in the Commons debate in May 2012, where she said for the smallest companies kind of outside the EU, she would envision there be no regulation whatsoever, you know, no minimum wage, no maternity or paternity rights, no unfair dismissal, no pension rights. I think that there's an understanding that the embrace of that kind of tax havenish-esque economic model in the current context would lead to great degree, great degree of wealth accumulation for those who are advocating for those. Hmm. I mean, it, it brings to mind, I mean, as well as uh, tax havens, it, it, you know, it makes me think of, um, I mean, you, you, you talk actually in, in your writing about the, 
this, the strange sort of parallel between the Brexit project and the, the period of, of, of anti-colonial struggle where you have sort of the local bourgeoisie in the, in the global south who uh, reap the benefits of the struggle of, of, of other people and then preside over, you know, pretty miserable, um, uh, a pretty miserable economic situation. And uh, I suppose it's weird to think that perhaps that might be the final destination for the, for the Brexiteers would, would be for Britain to, in, in some respects, more closely resemble uh, some of the countries in the, in the global global south other thing that came to mind was you know sort of free trade export processing zones where the law of the land doesn't apply and it's just you know a total free-for-all and then whatever the foreign corporations say say goes yeah i mean it's something that they've actually kind of not just suggested but almost explicitly accepted um so i don't know if everyone's had the chance to read on britannia and chain but i think anyone who is taking an interest in what's going on underneath the kind of Brexit moment should read that to so the document written by, you know, Dominic Raab and Kwesi Kwarting and a few of these um, Tory Brexiteers. Um, and there's a section in that where they talk with almost gushing admiration at the way in which um, uh, economic liberalisation has inspired the work ethic and the endeavour, the, the willingness to endeavour of uh, populations in the global south, particularly India. They compare, you know, what they consider to be the, the lazy... Um, <laughs> you know, um, kind of, um, yeah, profligate um, British working classes, uh, you know, who've grown fat and useless on the comforts of the welfare state. Um, they compare that with what they consider to be the much more flexible, much more hardworking, much more precarious working classes of the global south and talk about how that is what we need to try and engender within this particular um, jurisdiction. I think that it is unsurprising, you know, people like Michel Foucault, Franz Fanon of often wrote at the time of colonialism that there's a, a boomerang of the colonial project, you know, what's often done by the European powers in the colonial um, hinterlands, in the colonial peripheries, often return back to the metropole in certain ways, you know, ways in which the, those populations were treated often return back to the, to the working classes within the European powers. And I think it is, um, yeah, it's quite myopic to imagine that there wouldn't be some blowback from the liberalisation of the um, newly independent colonial powers in the kind of neo-colonialist moment. The idea that, you know, once they gained a certain national independence and a uh, fantastic book at the moment by Quinn Slobodan um, called The Globalists, called The End of Empire and the Birth of Liberalism, really kind of maps this out excellently, the way in which uh, a lot of the neoliberal reforms in terms of the institutions of international law that were established in the latter half of the 20th century were really concerned with um, responding to the threat of nationalism and the threat that nationalism held to the international um, global market following decolonization. I think, though, yeah, one of the big myopias perhaps of the West was to think that, that they could empower the international capitalist class supported by these um, legal institutions to, uh, I guess, dismantle the kind of third worldist national project and not expect there to be some blowback at some point in terms of what they then expected corporate tax rates and workers' regulations and environmental regulations and living standards to be like back in the heart of empire. One reaction that uh, we've seen to Brexit on on the left, although it has a it has a much longer history, is the argument that the left needs to just sort of reckon with and accept the sort of patriotic instincts of ordinary people, and and that we should sort of attempt to develop a, a progressive English uh, nationalism. 
there's a sort of you know kind of parallel thing going on with the you know the sort of pretty reactionary blue labor tradition uh where it's you know more in terms of 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 a sort of uh, an enmeshing of social conservatism with a, with with sort of some more progressive economic policies but it's it's more in that case in terms of britain um but there's also this more sort of progressive position around english nationalism it's associated with people like anthony barnett and and billy bragg However, I mean, you, you argue that, that such a, a project would inevitably marginalise the position of, of Britain's ethnic minorities and that left attempts to harness patriotism for progressive purposes always ends in nationalism effectively subsuming uh, the, the, the uh, radicalism. Can you explain why you think such a project is, is both misguided and, and doomed to fail ultimately? I mean, I definitely would agree with the part that, uh, yeah, it's, it's doomed to fail and it's misguided, but it's not that I'm completely unsympathetic to where it comes from. Um, uh, this year's World Transformed uh, uh, shared a panel in terms of debating this with um, John Denham, who obviously pushes this very hard in terms of the idea of an English nationalism within the Labour Party. And, you know, I think that it's, it, it does identify some, some, some crucial issues, the way in which the frames this. It's, of course... And kind of tying back into the conversation we were having about the distance between the uh, kind of international bourgeois within the United Kingdom and everyday people's lives, um, you know, this is particularly acute issue in the United Kingdom. No country has gone further in terms of allowing companies to be taken by foreign control. No country has gone further in terms of allowing its kind of public sector to be subject to, you know, foreign investment in terms of, you know, its property to be a kind of repository for foreign wealth funds. Um, so I understand that there is uh, that kind of need to present a challenge to the, to the strength of international finance capital. But I just think that that response of, well, turning, turning within ourselves, becoming insular, rebuilding communities, privileging the local instead of the global, I think ignores the way in which the globalization of the world has changed our political horizons, changed our threshold. Um, there's little understanding, I often find, in the kind of radical nationalist project of actual nationalism and how nationalism was produced kind of historically. Um, you know, most famously, most commonly known is kind of Bennett Anderson's understanding of imagined communities and the role that print capitalism played in developing national consciousness and in, you know, a, a developing a kind of national print languages, newspapers and pamphlets and all of these um, documents allowing people to understand themselves as part of a national um, project. And I often find that there is a, 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 an ignoring of the way in which that technology and that means of communication has changed over over the, the over the, the the contemporary moment, which means that people's political horizons have changed. People are far more global and international than ever before because that's the way they communicate. That's the way they live their lives. I mean, there's people like I always try and say this story. There's people like my own mother, who's born in Ghana, lived in the UK now for thirty years. In terms of her political life, she's still living in Ghana. She knows everything of what's going on in terms of the politicians and the different scandals and the different elections and the different contests. That's what she um, consumes and completely ignores anything that happens in terms of the United Kingdom. You know, I generally don't think she could name five British politicians. Um, you know, I'm not saying that that's... She's probably better off. I'm not saying that that's particularly admirable, but that is... Um, and an impact, you know. Hopefully, one doesn't listen to this because I will be beaten. But um, <laughs> but um, but that's uh, I think reflective of the way that not just a lot of ethnic minority 
people live their lives, but the way a lot of people live their lives, their family relationships, their concerns, their priorities exist beyond national boundaries. They exist um, outside of these already preset jurisdictions and to ask them to try and contain their political imaginaries within those i think is 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 doomed to alienate those people who feel like they can't do that for those reason um so the only people who will resonate are those who who feel that they can impose that fixity on the modern world and who can limit those those board, those boundaries and those borders as well but also the idea of a kind of radical nationalism just doesn't respond to many of the issues that currently concern the globe whether we're talking about the financialization of the economy you know whether we're talking about you know gentrification of neighborhoods and the impossibility of housing and property prices you know whether we're talking about climate change or data monopolization these aren't problems that can be resolved within any one within any one national state within any jurisdiction and also i, I do think as well that there is a very often patronizing dismissal of the concerns of kind of working class people by to say, well, the only way you can get through to them. And, you know, as a northerner living in the south, I'm particularly sensitive to this, but there's a real dismissal. The only way you can speak to those guys in the northwest is the only way is to have to speak to them about nationalism, about Englishness, about, you know, the war and whatever. And it completely erases incredibly inspiring history of English working class radicalism, whether it's the UK being the home of the anti-apartheid movement around the world, finding allies, you know, amongst huge amounts of the working class population, whether it's, you know, miners from across the country going to volunteer in the Spanish Civil War, you know, whether it's the Manchester cotton workers, boycotting, um, you know, plantation cotton that was coming from uh, the slave plantation in the United States. Um, there's, yeah, many moments of history of working class international solidarity. And I think it, it's, it's, it's a political laziness to not feel that we can engender that again and that we can't provoke that again within the population. So the only way we can communicate with them is by, you know, kind of, yeah, titillating base national um, instincts. Why do you think, I mean, because it feels to me that this is a is an argument that kind of comes around again, sort of, uh, you know, repeatedly for decades, you know, and as, you, as you mentioned, it goes back to people like George Orwell, uh, you know, who, who ironically was, you know, sort of arguing for an English patriotism, despite going and fighting in the Spanish Civil War alongside, you know, lots of, lots of working class people. And actually, it makes me think of, I mean, I was listening to a recent episode of a, a there's a show called Sweet 212 uh, that Juliet Jakes hosts, and they, they were having a conversation about George Orwell. And one of the things they noted was that whenever Orwell encountered uh, a working class person who, who was educated, he effectively sort of viewed them as, as, as a kind of uh, as a sort of middle class or sort of deracinated working class person. You know, they weren't the real working class. And there was this kind of sense that there's this kind of real authentic working class that, as you say, you know, sort of, lives in the north of England and is only 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 can be sort of motivated on, on the basis of of, uh, of patriotism. And, you know, it's a sort of analysis which leads to, um, you know, the, the periodic uh, cases of, of Guardian journalists going on safari to the north of England to tell us about ordinary people. Why do you think that kind of view is so resilient? Does it come out of that quite paternalist strand of uh, socialism, you know, associated with things like Fabianism, uh, which effectively viewed socialism as a project to be run by sort of enlightened elites and that 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 sort of led to a kind of a, a failure to try and work with and alongside working class people and to and to see them as as, as relatively sort of passive voting blocks that you had to try and mobilize through through these kind of patriotic mm. appeals 
I think that's definitely an element about it that 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 kind of yeah patronizing approach to the working class populations. I also I really do think that there's a huge um, geographic element to it as well. I think that so much of political discourse is entrenched in the South, um, in the United Kingdom, and historically, the kind of distance. In terms of collaboration, in terms of solidarity between um, the centre of political action uh, happening in London and the surrounding south and the industrial heartlands in the north, I think, led to a failure of communication, which means that there is a uh, an absence of appreciation for not only the political culture of the, many of the cities in the north, um, but the intellectual culture of them as well. Like, you know, like I say, so I grew up in the northwest and, and uh, you know, this idea that it was seen as uncool, seen as unimpressive to be intelligent is something that just isn't familiar with myself. Um, I think that there is a real, um, there's a real pride in that, you know, um, whether it's the literature, whether it's the kind of, um, the kind of, yeah, intelligent element of the kind of pop culture revolution that comes out of, you know, Manchester and Liverpool and Sheffield and all these places in the last decades of the 20th century. Um, there's a real, yeah, pride in being, um, almost obnoxiously intelligent and that's the kind of the the, the cockiness of political discourse that I'd often find with the um, older relatives of friends and stuff who um, I'd kind of first speak to growing up and that's something that I find completely erased from ideas of connecting to um, working class populations or yeah northern populations within the the kind of yeah Westminster political and um, academic bubble that I now have resided myself in. <laughs> You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.